If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There's accounts of him beating Cromwell up on a regular basis and treating him like a dog. And yet... Cromwell's loyalty never wavers from Henry. That was Tracy Borman on the often tumultuous relationship between Henry VIII and Thomas Cromwell. We lost a few men, and you could hear the roaring water about 20 or 30 feet below the river rushing by, and we lost a few men down, fell over. Oh, and people actually fell in? Yes, fell in the, from the plank. And that was First World War veteran William Holbrook describing his experiences of September 1914. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. First up this week, we're talking about Thomas Cromwell. Born to a lowly family in Putney in the late 15th century, Cromwell went on to become one of the most powerful men in Tudor England, second only to the king. But who was the real Cromwell, and what caused Henry VIII to condemn his one-time favourite to the executioner's block? 
Our features editor Charlotte Hodgman met up with historian Tracy Borman at Hampton Court Palace to find out more about the highs and lows of Henry's henchmen. Thomas Cromwell, how did he actually become Henry's right-hand man in the first place? It was really a tale of rags to riches Mm. with Thomas Cromwell. He was the son of a blacksmith. He had a very hard upbringing. There's hints of violence on the part of his father. There's even rumours that that Cromwell was in prison for a while and it's been speculated that that's perhaps why he took himself off to the continent. He certainly seemed to have left England in a hurry when he was still a teenager. And so he really came from just this total opposite background to the vast majority of Henry's court. The only other precedent was Thomas Wolsey, uh, Cardinal Wolsey, who was the son of a butcher and became Cromwell's first master really I think that was a meeting of minds there and it was certainly Wolsey's patronage that was largely to to thank um sorry it was certainly Wolsey's patronage that was um Cromwell could draw on really um in paving his way to the court of Henry VIII and he used his contacts well Uh, Wolsey uh, introduced Cromwell to many important figures at court and of course to the king himself Um, but I think Cromwell's main advantage was his sheer ability I think he was borderline genius he taught (laughs) himself law he taught himself several languages he just seemed to have this huge brain this huge capacity for knowledge and uh, and he had this even bigger ambition, and those two things combined to devastating effect. Yeah, and you think? Do you think Henry saw that early on? I think Henry certainly spotted Cromwell's potential very early, yeah. um, because Cromwell was fighting against all the odds when he first really made his entree into, into the court. Was fifteen twenty nine when he was closely associated with the man who'd just fallen from favour, Cardinal Wolsey. Nobody could have expected Cromwell to succeed. In fact, no. he was probably expected to go the same way as his master, and yet. He not only managed to pave his own way in that court, but he won back Henry's favour for Wolsey, albeit in some degree not a total um, reclaim of favour so that Wolsey was reinstated. But certainly he made Henry think benevolently towards the cardinal again. And what sort of man was he? He's quite a hard man to kind of know what he was like, isn't he? Because you say he was borderline genius. But what was he like, was he like as a person? I think Cromwell's been really wrongly portrayed until recent years with mm. the, um, the renaissance he's enjoyed thanks to Hilary Mantel. He's been seen as a humourless bureaucrat, yeah. one of the typical villains of history. He's, he masterminds the dissolution of the monasteries and he um, cold-heartedly puts Anne Boleyn to death. He had such a different character, I think, to that. Certainly he was ruthless, certainly he was ambitious, but he was also funny, he was irreverent, he was highly intelligent. Um, He had this sense of not being afraid of authority um, and and just appealing to the human side of people in authority. So, for example, when he wanted something from the Pope, uh, he gave him sweets because he knew the Pope had a sweet (laughs) tooth. And he won people around in in surprising little ways like that. And I think I totally warmed to him when I was doing my research. That's certainly not... Um, the idea that you, you know, like you say, has been portrayed of him before. He's um, he's been, you know, I always think he's been quite cold and mm. you know, humourless. Absolutely, and and that side has come through very strongly. And certainly, he was ruthless when he needed to be. And but then this was a, 
a, a dog-eat-dog dog world that mm. you'd have caught. If, if you weren't ruthless, you wouldn't survive. Yeah. Certainly you wouldn't survive in any powerful capacity, and, and Cromwell undoubtedly wanted power. So he had to fight fire with fire in that way. Um, but he did have this softer side to him. He had very close friends who he was very loyal to. He was very, very loyal and loving towards his family too. And I think that's what Hilary Mantel really draws out in her novels yeah. to um, very credible effect, actually. And do we know what his contemporaries thought of him? Yeah, um, the opinion is quite widely divided among contemporaries and um, his friends do, literally don't have a bad word to say about him. They praise his loyalty, mm. his steadfastness, um, the, the fact that he'll do anything for them and you get a sense that his, his son in particular really loved him, really looked up, uh, up to him. But his enemies can't think of a good word to say about him. Um, but the, I think the character who uh, most um, interests me in terms of his descriptions of Cromwell was Eustace um, Chapuis, the imperial ambassador, because he was a natural enemy of Cromwell, but he can't help himself. I think he kind of liked him. Yeah. And so he does admit that you know Cromwell could just hold everybody's attention wrapped when he was telling a joke or that he threw a great party he was a brilliant host um and so i think his descriptions are probably the most accurate because yeah. you get the good and the bad and would you say it was a, a friendship between him and henry as well as a kind of you know political and you know a power type thing do you know i don't think it ever quite was it certainly not in the way that Henry VIII uh, related to Cardinal Wolsey. I think he trusted Wolsey a lot more. I think there was a, a companionship that you don't sense in the same way with Cromwell. And I think Henry had his fingers burnt by Wolsey mm. and would never quite trust a so-called low-born minister in the same way um, as, as he did Wolsey. Uh, that said, Cromwell took risks in his relationship with Henry. He told Henry hard truths that other courtiers wouldn't dare. And you get the feeling that, that he was a lot more... Uh, frank a lot more open with Henry and, and and didn't always just play the courtier with him. Yeah. Um, the break with Rome and the dissolution of the monasteries is probably um, one of his high points for Cromwell, wasn't it? Mm. Um, how much power did he actually have at this point? Cromwell was all powerful at mm. that stage. Um, the opinions divided as to how soon he conceived the idea of the Reformation in its totality, including the dissolution of the monasteries. Um, it, undoubtedly, other minds contributed to that, but Cromwell was the one with the vision and with the audacity to take it forward. And when the Reformation was at its height in the late 1530s, certainly from 1536 onwards, Cromwell was all-powerful. There are, there's quote after quote from different ministers, from different ambassadors, basically saying he is the number one man at court, mm. you know, second only to the king, and some even rumoured he had his eyes on the throne himself, although I think we can discount that. <laughs> Um, and his, his relationship with Anne Boleyn has, has also been quite well documented. Um, did he really sort of mastermind her demise? Did he really hate her that much? I think uh, the relationship between Cromwell and Anne Boleyn was, was fascinating. Mm. Uh, they were allies for, for quite a long time. Uh, they certainly shared uh, a, a love of the reformed religion. Um, and Cromwell put Anne on the throne, there's no doubt about it. He was the one who finally secured the divorce from Catherine of Aragon for Henry, which of course brought Anne to power. But their relationship did break down. And I think he what Cromwell realised that was that he was backing the wrong horse. Um, when Anne failed to give Henry the son that he craved, her star was falling at court. 
Cromwell could no longer associate himself with her. And it was also, there's a sense of it's a battle to the death. I think um, it was almost Cromwell's neck or hers. She openly threatened him. She said she would like to see his head off his shoulders. And so it wasn't a sort of unprovoked attack on his part. I think he was fighting for survival. So what, why was she? Why was she against him? What happened? You know, what happened to cause her to hate him? I think it's it's really interesting because I think one of the main reasons um, was that she felt that the Reformation was going too far and it was becoming too much about profit. So she agreed with the dissolution of the monasteries, but, but she thought that the profits ought to be diverted to charitable causes, right. to setting up new foundations, rather than just swelling the royal coffers. So that was certainly a point of contention. But also, I think she realised that Cromwell wasn't um, an unquestioned, unquestioned supporter of her, uh, that he wasn't going to be with her through thick and thin, that he was just there for as long as she was powerful, and then he would desert her. Mm. And so she set out to mastermind his downfall, and it was really who could get there first. And I do think it was thanks to Cromwell that Anne was executed. Um, there are many different theories about Anne's downfall, but you can certainly see the paths and the sort of um, the, the tangled web, if you like, that he wove to entrap Anne. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what, at what point would you say that Henry's high opinion of Cromwell started to, to wane? I think it was quite late in the day because... Even in April 1540, so um, a mere two months before Cromwell's arrest, he was made an earl. He was made Mm -hmm. Earl of Essex. Uh, He was given great honour at court. And um, ambassadors suddenly reported, you know, Cromwell's star is on the rise again. It's all looking favourable for him. And then suddenly, and it was so sudden, the 10th of June, the Privy Council meets, Cromwell arrives late, and he's immediately arrested. And you get the sense of shock from Cromwell. Even just, I was looking at letters that he wrote just hours before that. There's no indication that he knew what was going to come. He didn't see it coming. No. He didn't see it coming. And Cromwell knew everything that was going on at court. So I think it was certainly a conspiracy um, by Cromwell's enemies, notably Stephen Gardner, uh, Bishop of Winchester, and also the Duke of Norfolk. Uh, I think Henry himself still retained quite a lot of affection for Cromwell, but he was persuaded against him by this conspiracy. Do you, so do you think that had been happening for some weeks beforehand, um, even though Cromwell wasn't aware of that? I think this power struggle between those two big rival factions, um, mm. Cromwell on the one hand and Gardner and Norfolk on the other, that had been going on for years, not just weeks. And um, Cromwell had always just about managed to get the upper hand, although what, what Norfolk in particular had over him was that he was blue-blooded. He was of noble stock and he really used that with Henry it's like look you can't trust these low-born ministers look what happened with Wolsey mm. and I think gradually that played on Henry's increasing paranoia and um and, and then Cromwell arranges the disastrous marriage to Anne of Cleves and that certainly doesn't help his cause towards the end yes I mean Anne of Cleves it wasn't his finest moment um was he do you think he was surprised um, I, I think he was uh, I think he'd taken sort of the necessary precautions to ensure it would be a good match mm. in that he has um, sent Holbein over to take Anne's portrait so that Henry wasn't just marrying blindly. And it came back a very nice portrait <laughs> and Henry liked it very much. Um, but I think Holbein has sort of flattered Anne. Although I think also that's been overplayed that she was the ugly wife. Um, she wasn't to Henry's taste, certainly. But there was as much about her manners and her, her sort of um, cultural achievements or lack of um, that really put Henry off. Um, and so, but I think 
Cromwell didn't give up on the marriage immediately. I think he, he'd certainly worked on Henry to, to try and like Anne a bit more, and he worked on Anne to try and please the king more. Yeah. But Henry, there was no going back for him. Once he'd met her, he shouted to Cromwell, I like her not, <laughs> and he wouldn't have anything to do with her after that. Do we know what Cromwell thought of Anne himself? No, we don't get a sense. I mean, she, certainly he tries to praise her, mm. you know, desperately say, sort of drawing on any virtues or uh, or kind of um, adornments that she had. But you do get the feeling that actually he, he knew he was onto a loser here, that he'd chosen the wrong bride. Absolutely. Yeah. So how far do you think Cromwell's determination to, to push through religious reform um, contributed to his downfall? I think uh, Cromwell became more extreme in the course of religious reform as his um, ascendancy progressed. He became perhaps a little too arrogant, um, perhaps a little out of touch with the mood of the people. Uh, but he had cause to be confident uh, in Henry's support because Henry had shown little sign of wavering. Uh, but, Henry, but Cromwell did become quite extreme towards the end and uh, really pushed through quite radical ideas and Henry was clearly getting nervous at that stage mm. he was going too far and he started to then lend a friendly ear to the conservative Catholics at court Norfolk and Gardner principal amongst them and Cromwell should perhaps have taken more of a warning from that I think he carried on regardless because he was confident he would win Henry round mm. whereas of course he didn't and Henry was put off for good, really, and wanted to try and sort of conciliate with the Pope and uh, with the Catholic powers of Europe. I mean, Henry and Cromwell's relationship is quite a roller coaster one, you know, ups and downs. And um, at the very end, was there anything that Cromwell could have done to have, have saved his, his neck, really? I think Cromwell did everything possible. There's an agonising letter, uh, or two letters, in fact, that he wrote to Henry from the Tower where he's really writing to save his own neck. Um, he's been asked to write uh, to basically give evidence in supporting Henry's divorce from Anne of Cleves. So Henry's really wringing every last bit of service yeah. out of Cromwell. Even when he's in the Tower, he's making him write a letter that will help him get rid of Anne of Cleves. And Cromwell does that very dutifully. He puts all the blame on Anne and, you know, she's clearly unsuitable as a wife. But then... There's the desperate pleading of a doomed man. And it's heartbreaking reading that final letter that he writes to Henry, which is full of pleading and, and begging for forgiveness and saying what a wretched subject he is. And then, as if that isn't enough, he adds a desperate postscript which in which he pleads for mercy, mercy, mercy. And you just know that's his last letter. And he, of course, doesn't get mercy. What we know is that Henry asks for that letter to be read to him three times, now, it, of course, didn't do the trick, but no. I think the very fact he wanted to hear it suggests to me that it was on a knife edge as to whether he would pardon him. But in the end, I think just the, uh, the critical voices of the likes of Norfolk and Gardner persuaded Henry, you can't let Cromwell live. Yeah. I mean, it is very um, reminiscent of Anne Boleyn, really, wasn't it? Mm. She was writing to him from the Tower. But yes. Um, so you think Henry was, has really, was really turned by the people around him? I do, I do. And I think he was naturally becoming more paranoid um, and mm. suspicious as a king anyway, as he got into the latter part of his reign. So it was almost a sense of he, do, he didn't need much persuading. Yeah. And it was quite characteristic of him to show somebody great favour one minute and chop off their head the next. So Cromwell wasn't the only victim of that rather capricious king. Yeah. And, and how, how did people react to his death? 
there was uh, opinion was divided about uh, Cromwell's death. It's easy to say. I mean, everybody rejoiced. Uh, there, there was a quote about. Um, uh, few lamented but many rejoiced uh, but actually I think that's um, slightly distorting the picture certainly at court many many rejoiced he had many powerful enemies at the heart of the court um, and Henry VIII very callously marries Catherine Howard on the very same day as Cromwell's execution so he seems not to give it a second thought um, but the common people of London were apparently devastated because Cromwell had been very kind to them he'd always had their interests of, at heart He'd um, looked out for the merchants of London. He'd given very generously to the poor. And so it was recorded by several chroniclers that there was a sort of general groaning at his execution. The, the commoners, uh, the, the common subjects of, of Henry VIII, were genuinely grief-stricken at Cromwell's demise. And it's not long before Henry is too. Just a few right. short months later, he's lamenting the loss of the most faithful servant he ever had. And blaming other people, perhaps, for, for making him Exactly. Gardiner and Norfolk don't do too well after that. You know, no. they're, they're, Norfolk ends up in, in the tower, and, uh, and and so they fall from power. Because, yeah, Henry's looking for somebody to blame. He, yeah. he will never turn that blame on himself and realise that he shouldn't have got rid of, of the man who was unquestionably loyal. That's what Cromwell was to Henry throughout, no matter how badly Henry treated him. And there's accounts of him beating Cromwell up on a regular basis and right. treating him like a dog. And yet Cromwell's loyalty never wavers from Henry. I think he's, he's the only person whose interest Cromwell valued more than his own. It's very sad, isn't it, really? It's incredibly sad. I mean, was that because he, he genuinely felt affection for the king or was it for his own, his own gain, that loyalty? I think that's an interesting question. Certainly, um, he always had an eye to his own career mm. and his own security. But there's a sense that he genuinely loved Henry. He just wanted to serve him. He would take whatever Henry threw at him and, and he did throw a lot during the course of his <laughs> career at court. Um, but... There's never a sense that he would he he was looking to the next monarch or he was making alliances abroad or anything that might suggest a slight wavering of loyalty to Henry. I think he sort of hero worshipped Henry to yeah. a certain extent. I mean, how did Cromwell compare with Wolsey in the in his his style of advising and you know as a as a person? I think they were like two peas in a pod, really. Mm. Um, they were from similar backgrounds, you know, and, and that was remarked upon a lot because you just, that wasn't the usual route to court. No. You, you had to be born into it. Um, and they were both very clever, very witty, very irreverent, uh, you know, quite a disrespect for authority. And so they kind of won Henry over in that way. Yeah. Um, but I think Cromwell appreciated the difference being that Henry would never allow himself to get as close to anybody as he did to Wolsey. So yeah. there was a, a respectful distance, I think, between Cromwell yeah. and Henry that hadn't existed between Henry and Wolsey. And did he ever have anybody like Cromwell and Wolsey after, after they... That was it. Mm. That, was, that was it, really. That, you know, there was a succession of, of different noblemen at court and uh, different advisers, but there was never another Cromwell or another Wolsey. That, that was it as far as Henry was concerned. He just became increasingly paranoid, irascible, unpredictable, um, and right up to his, his final days. And uh, nobody could judge which way he was going to go, but certainly there was nobody at court who would gain that same level of power. How did Cromwell behave with his own family? What sort of man was he there? You get the sense from the few letters that exist about Cromwell and his family that he was a very loyal husband, a very loving husband, actually, and, and loving father. But 
quite a lot of inference needs to be made, particularly with his relationship with his wife, Elizabeth, um, which has been portrayed as, as very affectionate, very close. But in fact, there isn't that much evidence of their relationship full stop. There's one letter that survives that Cromwell wrote to his wife. And it's really a covering note because he's sending her a, a rather unusual gift, uh, which is a dead deer that he has slaughtered <laughs> on a hunt. And it's not even all for her because he includes instructions for her to chop it up and give half to his friends. <laughs> Very romantic. And so how romantic is that? Mm. But he does sort of address the letter to, you know, my well-beloved wife, Elizabeth, although that was a common term um, of endearment in Tudor times. Um, his relationship with his son, there's much more evidence of the closeness that exists and, and many letters were exchanged with, with Gregory and Cromwell certainly focused a lot on Gregory's mm. education. And unusually, his two young daughters, who sadly died um, very early on uh, in their life, um, Cromwell also invested in their education. And I think that's real credit to him as a father, because that certainly wasn't the norm. So overall, the picture is one of a man who was intensely loyal to his immediate circle, yeah. um, but obviously ruthless to quite a few others beyond that. Why has he had that, that bad reputation until quite recently? What, what's, what's caused that? I think partly people have just neglected that other side, that other mm. part of his life. They've focused on his public career and that creates quite a one-dimensional character. This, as I mentioned, a sort of humorless bureaucrat who's just focused on business and quite cold and calculating, whereas in his more personal letters and correspondence, the the other Cromwell, the, the, the witty kind loyal man emerges so strongly yeah. and I think is as significant it's it's not to do with great state affairs but but it's about the man who ran those affairs and so I think it deserves exploration and that's certainly what I tried to do in my um in my book that was Tracy Borman Tracy's book Thomas Cromwell the untold story of Henry VIII's most faithful servant will be published next week in the UK by Hodder and Stoughton. And it should be available for the Kindle in the US at a similar time. Tracy has also written an article on Thomas Cromwell in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which is out now. Also this month, we explore Britain's plans to repel a Nazi invasion, a crisis in ancient Rome, and how the James Bond novels relate to Jamaican history. You can get hold of our September issue now in all good news agents or as a digital edition. And if you're thinking of taking out a subscription, we are currently offering new UK subscribers five issues for just £5, but that is for a limited time only. Head to historyextra.com forward slash subscribe to take advantage of that. And Tracy Borman is one of the speakers at this year's BBC History magazine History Weekend which takes place in October in Malmesbury. There are still tickets available for some of the talks, and for details of that and to book tickets, please visit historyweekend.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. It's now time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. Queen Victoria had an affair with her Scottish servant, John Brown, new evidence suggests. Julia Baird, who was working on a biography of Queen Victoria, says she has found a record of a curious interaction between the pair in the diary of the monarch's trusted doctor, Sir James Reed. In an unpublished extract held by Reed's descendants, the doctor recalls how on Thursday the 22nd of March 1883, he opened the door to Victoria's room to find her flirting with John Brown as she walked a little. Brown says to her, lifting his kilt, Oh, I thought it was here. She responds, lifting up her dress, No, it is here. Writing for the New York Times, Baird says it is unclear from the note exactly what it might be, but that the diary entry reveals an extraordinary level of intimacy that exceeded not just what was normal for a lady and her servant, let alone a queen, but also for male and female friends. The nature of the relationship between Brown and Queen Victoria has long been debated by biographers. In other news, a medieval sword, possibly taken as a trophy during the 1066 Battle of Hastings, is due to go up for auction this week. The extremely rare broadsword belonged to Humphrey de Boone, a kinsman of William the Conqueror. The weapon has an earlier Viking blade, dating from the mid-11th century. Sir Humphrey fought at Hastings, where Christie's auctioneers believe he could have captured the sword, BBC News reports. The sword is expected to fetch up to £120,000 in the auction houses out of the ordinary sale in South Kensington. Meanwhile, a heroic First World War horse has been presented posthumously with a so-called Animal Victoria Cross. Warrior, dubbed the horse the Germans could not kill, was awarded the honorary PDSA Dickin Medal at a special ceremony. The award is the first honorary PDSA Dickin Medal ever presented in the veterinary charity's 97-year history, in recognition of the bravery of millions of animals that served during the conflict, the Telegraph reports. 
The medal was accepted by author and broadcaster Bruff Scott MBE, grandson of Warriors owner and rider General Jack Seeley, at a special ceremony at the Imperial War Museum, London. Thanks, Emma. As regular listeners will know, we like to read out messages that you've sent in to us on podcast at historyextra.com. And recently we were contacted by Christian Leo, who is listening in Santa Barbara. Christian writes, I know it was back in May, but I download a set of your podcasts after I've listened to a bunch of others. That interview with Tim Butcher is the reason I enjoy listening to your podcasts. The way he delivers his knowledge about his book on Gavrilo Princip, the assassin charged with starting the First World War, makes history grippingly exciting. Thanks for your message, Christian. If anyone would like to listen again to that interview with Tim Butcher, it can be found in our episode from the 22nd of May, which is still available to download, as indeed are all our previous broadcasts. Now, since June this year, we've been running a series in the magazine entitled Our First World War, which recreates the events of 100 years ago through the voices of those who were there. And alongside that on the podcast, we've been regularly broadcasting some audio clips from interviews by the Imperial War Museum. For the latest issue, we've moved on to September 1914. Royal Fusilier William Holbrook had just finished the retreat from the Battle of Mons, and now he found himself attacking German positions close to the River Aisne. Here he is describing attempts to cross that river. The Aisne is a, a river, and a few yards further on there's a canal. So you see, it's a canal, the river goodbye. So you, what the Germans done, they'd blown up, the, uh, they'd left the canal intact, the first was the canal, but blown up the river over the river. It was very, very high. And what the engineers had to do, that's why we had to wait that night, was to throw a bridge as far as possible over from one side of the bridge up, they'd blown up. If the distance was about, oh, I suppose, what would be 10, 15 feet, it would have been blown up, hell of a job. And we had to cross, <coughs> when they got there, we had to cross these planks uh, next, uh, next night, Connor, the next afternoon. It was a hell of a job. There's no railing. It's just bare planks and they, they kept moving as you, as you walked on them. There's no support to you. There's only this support from the whole of the length of this plank. There's nothing, just two planks together. I don't know how they got that. And, and as you put one foot down, half dark when I was across, as you put one foot down, you see, the weight of your body, the board, as you lift the foot, sprang up and met the other foot before you could get it down to the ground. It was a hell of a job of getting across. And we lost a few men, and you could hear the roaring water about, I suppose, about 20 or 30 feet below, the river rushing by. And we lost a few men down, fell over. Oh, and people actually fell in? Yes, fell in the, from the blank. And we got across, and the, our colonel, I always name the colonel, but I not here, he, he stood the other side, he went across first. He stood the other side of the bridge and, and called about my name and helped and that's what he got. And I remember him saying to one man, there's a soldier in the front of me, his name was Jarvis, I remember now. And he's very, very timid. And I remember as he went, he halted and stopped and I uh, give him a bit down. He got across in the end. I, I heard the colonel say to him, and what's your name? He said, Sergeant Jarvis. Sir. Are you all right? He said, he said, yes. So we helped him over anyway. We got across and, he, and by 12 o'clock we'd taken over eight, nine hundred men across the plank. Marvellous it was, really. So we got across the river. They didn't run up a, a rope or something for you to hold on to as you went across them? Hmm? They didn't put a rope or something like no, that? No, nothing, nothing. It's just all the planks supported by kind of boxes or something. There's no, there was no uh, 
rope to, to hold on by. You said you walked by my spine. Yeah, hell of a job he was getting across. Anyway, you got across here, and, and there we... You weren't in the fire this time? You weren't in the fire uh, They were saying shedding a bit, not much, when these shells were coming over. Back in Britain, the home front was gearing up to support the war effort, and one man involved in that was Joe Pickard from Northumberland. Here he recalls the building of a new army camp. Then uh, the army decided to open a big base depot, and it was built opposite the castle, where you could look down great, there was open spaces, so they built a lot of huts there. And uh, with being unemployed, and there wasn't any other sort of work, so I just took it in my head one morning, and I went down to see I'll get a job. And uh, I, w- I walked up to the big general foreman, God, he wrote twice the size of me. <laughs> and I just asked him, I said, any chance of a job? So he sort of looked us up and down, and I was about five foot seven or thereabouts then. And he said, what can you do? Well, I said, anything. He said, all right, go across the office and get a check out. So I, I started there, building these huts. And uh, I was accepted by a joiner. He, had, he took me on as a sort of helper or apprentice. And he allowed me to use his tools and everything else. So I thought I was over the moon because I was fancied a bit of woodwork. <laughs> what sort of huts were they building? Were they good, solid ones? Could you yes, describe the it, construction? It was all built with uh, seasoned wood, not the stuff you get now. I mean, in latter years, they were fetching it straight off the boots. And of course, it was soft, you see. But then it was all good wood. And, uh, the, well, I don't know. There were uh, tin, not tin, but uh, roofs, you know. Uh, corrugated iron. That was the roofs. And there were stoves in the, in the huts and everything like that. Well, of course, I, I don't suppose uh, anybody knew much about that sort of thing. I mean, there was uh, something brand new for everybody. A big war like that started, and nobody knew anything about it. Did they have proper foundations? Uh, well, I had to put the water in and all that sort of thing. And uh, it, it's funny talking about foundations now. I mean, there was, uh, well, I put, had to put lavatories in and, and uh, water drains were put in and all that sort of thing. The hut itself, I don't know how many it held, about maybe 20 or something like that. Uh, and, and an NCU in, uh, in one end and a special little room in charge of the hut, you see, and that sort of thing. And you were built all over the country. And you were built, it was a standard design you were building? Oh, yes, yes, they were all, uh, they were all the same thing. And there was four, there was four battalions of troops, full battalions of troops were stationed down in what they call the passes. There was one raised by the, the shipbuilders and the people on the time, called the commercials, and they were, they were outfitted, they were dressed and everything else, uniforms, until the government took them over. And there was two, two out of four battalions of Tyneside Scottish, and there was one battalion of the Tyneside Irish. And they all came and were stationed here. That was Joe Pickard. And you can read more from our First World War veterans each month in BBC History magazine. Okay, so that's almost all for this week. Please do tune in next time when we'll be joined by Dan Jones and Susanna Lipscomb to discuss the Wars of the Roses. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast. 
which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. 